Hey everybody, welcome back to another Bald Movie Podcast. Uh, this time we are looking at the Oliver Stone 1989 film, Born on the Fourth of July. It's based on the book of a, the same title, written by Ron Kovic, which uh, is about his life story. Uh, growing up in small town America, going over to Vietnam um, as an ardent supporter of the war, coming back and becoming part of the anti-war uh, protest movement. Uh, Oliver Stone and uh, Ron Kovic worked together on a screenplay. Oliver Stone, of course, also a Vietnam veteran of some distinction. Um, it stars Tom Cruise. I think everybody knows who Tom Cruise is as Ron Kovic. Um, Kira Sedgwick, uh, who you might remember as the terrible mom from Secondhand Lions and the shitty John Travolta movie Phenomenon. She's also starred for many years on TNT's The Closer. Raymond J. Barry, who I did not recognize as Arlo Givens, the father of one Raylan Givens from Justified, which I quite enjoyed. Frank Whaley, which you might most know him as uh, the Brett with the big brain from Pulp Fiction. Uh, Willem Dafoe. Do we, do we need to talk about Willem Dafoe's filmography? No. I mean... I'm going to anyway. Platoon, Last Temptation of Christ, Mississippi Burning, Spider-Man, Shadow of the Vampire, Boondock Saint, Antichrist, just a small selection. Uh, Born on the Fourth of July received eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Tom Cruise, which was his first nomination, and it won for Best Director, uh, Oliver Stone's second. His first was for Platoon and Best Film Editing. Um. Boy, this is a this I've never seen this film before. I don't know if you had. Um, and I kind of knew it roughly what it was about. Um, and I still found it a difficult film to watch, not because of anything, any problem. The filmmaking is just frustrating because it does feel like um, watching this in 2020 that uh, in many ways, American politics, this has never moved on from the Vietnam War. Yeah. What do you think of the film, Jim? Uh, yeah, I hadn't seen it either. Um Really, the only thing I knew about it going in was that it was an Oliver Stone directed Tom Cruise starred uh, movie about the Vietnam War, which, you know, if you listen to our The Five Bloods review, uh, I'm very unfamiliar with the history of the Vietnam War um, and, you know, the politics surrounding it. And so I guess I didn't know much of what to expect from this film, uh, but I ended up really liking it. I think um, it it has a way of sort of just letting the experiences on screen speak for themselves. Um, and, you know, it, the movie clearly has a lot to say, um, as I think Ron Kovic would have a lot to say and probably does in his biography, uh, his autobiography. But but this movie doesn't, like, spell it all out for you. And and in some ways, you know, it's it's maybe rides that, that line a little too much to one side of not spelling it out because yeah. I did find myself, like, going, oh, okay, I see that his character is changing, but I'm not exactly sure of the inflection points. Like, what what specifically was it that made him change his mind? But then again, I think that's very close to how real life works uh, on, yeah. on the human brain, right? Like, y- your experiences, and I think this movie is ultimately about, like, how someone's mind is changed on a topic. Um, yeah. Especially when they feel very strongly about it and and haven't questioned why they feel strongly about it. And I think over the course of the film, it does a really good, subtle job of showing you just how Ron Kovic changed his mind based on his experiences. Yeah. And it wasn't like a black and white. Oh, my God. You know, it was a slow, steady slide from one uh, extreme position to uh, another one. And it's it's yeah. it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I I got the same thing. Like, man, they are do like I kept on waiting for like this big soliloquy. Yeah. But like when he does have like uh you know, a soliloquy. It's usually some rage, alcohol, profane, not really well thought out kind of thing. It's more of just like the emotional experiential thing. Um, yeah. And it just, this takes place over the course of years and years of time. And it's, it's, it's also really funny because like, like two weeks ago, I think I recorded that uh, uh, three right turns 19 over on Swiss bold. And it was all about the process of how people change their mind. Like you said, on deeply held things that they haven't really considered before and how it can often take years. And I think this movie, you know, he enlists in 68 and he becomes an anti-war activist by 72. So like, and he got, you know, how much more of a shove in a, a different direction do you need than to come home from this war 
uh, see how the country treats its veterans um, on either side of the political aisle, see how they treat them in their hospitals, mm-hmm. be paralyzed, uh, be impotent, um, you know, be reviled by your own family. Like, it's like all that you think it would be so easy to just, but you can't, you can't. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and it just shows how like people's feelings on these, these matters run really deep. But I, you know, I, Oliver Stone, I'm all over the place with him. Like I always, uh, especially on stuff I'm not really familiar. I'm always skeptical of like, you know, what is he amping up? What is he leaving out? Um, I feel like this film, because it's based on, first of all, he's got firsthand knowledge. You know, he, he, sur- sur- he saw combat. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, he, like Ron Kovic, uh, voluntarily enlisted early on in the war in 1968, I think April of 68, joined up with the army, requested combat service, uh, spent over, I think, I think two years in Vietnam, uh, got two Purple Hearts, got a bronze uh, uh, star with a V for valor in combat. Um, I mean, he knows what the fuck he's talking about. And he's made two of the best movies uh, about Vietnam. Um, And I felt like because he respects that and, and Ron's story, like this stuff... Even the stuff where they're, you know, you got the obligatory, I feel like, um, scene of the GIs shooting up a village that mm-hmm. may or may not have been harboring, you know, uh, communist sympathizers. If they weren't before, they are now. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and killing the kids and killing the babies and, you know, the fratricide and all that kind of stuff. But Oliver Stone also does a very good job of putting you kind of in the that that experience is and and you know see like how confusing that would be to see the pressure of like do you see the rifle do you see the right your commanding officer is like telling you what you see and are you going to be the person that says no and then what happens if one of your friends dies um and then the same thing when he comes home and he's in the va hospital like you are disgustingly there in that in the in the in the squalor and kind of like you can see the budget cuts and you can see the lackadaisical attitudes and he's really good at that and not for nothing, he's got Johnny Williams propping him up on the score. So every single fucking emotional beat that you need to connect these dots of this man's internal conflict is is, is, is it fires on all cylinders cinematically. Um, and and, and I think this is some of his best work. It's sort of a crazy choice to put Cruz at the the you know the front of this film, like. Especially at this point in his career. Yeah, so at this point in his career, he's he's known for Top Gun. He's known for Risky Business. He's known cocktail. for... Cocktail. Cocktail. Yeah, he's like... He I did have Ebert Rain in Man. His review pointed it, uh, said it as he's the golden boy, right? And, and yeah. that's what everybody thinks of Tom Cruise as, kind of even still today, even though he's done so much other work. Uh, it's a really risk. It's really risky business putting Tom Cruise at the, the front of this film yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the lead actor role. But I think... Honestly, like if you want Tom Cruise's best, most interesting performances, you got to go to movies like this. You got to go to movies like uh, Vanilla Sky. You got to go to movies like Magnolia. Mm -hmm. Um, Stuff where he's doing more. He's doing something other than just smiling and being charismatic, you know, or or running and jumping. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And I think that especially at this stage in his career, when he was this pretty boy, when he was this golden boy. Um, to, you know, cause he, he does like that, the the Pete from Mad Men, uh, or he, he has the, they inflict a receding oh. hairline on him. Yeah. Yeah. And he is unattractive throughout a lot of the film and not just physically, um, you know, it's like, whatever, he's, just, he's still Tom Cruise, but like, he's also, um, hard this, even after you've seen everything he's been through it, there's some points where he's just such a fucking unrepentant asshole because of the experiences he's gone through and the things he's seen and the things he's experiencing at home. Um, you know, it, it's sometimes hard traumatized, you know, it's what, what, what is that? The, the phrase hurt people, hurt people. Um, and when they do it, it's, it's kind of ugly and there's this really powerful moment, the Willem Dafoe, where he kind of like looks at him. It's kind of like looking at himself in the mirror and being like, Jesus Christ, is this what I is this what I'm going to let this experience do to me? Yeah. Is this all or is there is there anything more I can do? And, you know, um, and there's man, th- th- this is where the the, the thing I, I kind of raise my eyebrows about the Hollywood shit uh, when they show like Kovacs as a kid playing soldier. Uh, when you see 
uh, like his never quit attitude, climbing the rope and in different situations where he's down on the, the he's down pinned on the mat. Like they, they make direct connections to those. Like this is what's going to enable him to get up and start the second chapter of his career. And, you know, Tom Cruise like fucking brings it. You know, he's not sparing his golden boy image at all um, and allowing himself to be this unlikable and unattractive at points I thought was was, you know, amazing. And, you know, uh, I want to at some point talk about alternate casting because there's a doozy. Um, (laughs) We can can do that maybe here in a minute. But I just wanted to point out also the subtlety in his his acting here because it's Tom Cruise has one of the best like stunned faces, I think, in all of Hollywood where there's something like his eyes open just a little more, his jaw goes a little bit slack, and you can see that there's something going on behind his eyes. Um, yeah. Like, he's having realizations, he's struggling with things, and, you know, Gears Tom Cruise doesn't get a lot of credit for that kind of acting, uh, but I, I really appreciate it in those moments where he's able to say more than the script does with just his acting. Yeah. Yeah, I think I and the I know what scene you're talking like the first anti-war protest he goes to and sees or or that that 4th of July parade when he comes back to town and he's expected yeah. to give a speech and he's just yeah. like yeah there's there's something incongruous up. right with mm-hmm. with his experience or his beliefs and what's happening in front of him. Yeah. He does a really Yeah, and job hearing, you know, hear, hearing the guy set him up with like and we're absolutely going to win. Uh, should we talk a little bit? Should, should we tell people? Because like I imagine there's a lot of people who haven't seen this film. It came out in '89. Um, if you're in our generation, that's like I remember that. Like that was when I was like a freshman in high school. Um, it's funny because you know, Born on the Fourth of July and Platoon were not exactly universally popular movies. They were very popular critically and in Hollywood because you know you'd expect liberals um, to enjoy it. But I remember growing up in small town Indiana, and I remember. And one history class, one of my freshman history teachers started railing against Oliver Stone, talking like he f- didn't fucking know what he did, wasn't, and he was making the our servicemen look like they were baby killers and buying in and all that bullshit. And one of the kids uh, stood up and said, uh, "Well, I don't know. Oliver Stone went to Vietnam. He thinks it's pretty accurate." And then the the teacher started like arguing with this kid and then the kid said you know also my dad went to vietnam and he says it was right on too did you go to vietnam sir and like there's this big blowout in my freshman high school history class in mooresville fucking indiana wow and i was thinking you know since then i've i've learned a lot about the world um i've changed a lot of my own conclusions um and especially about the vietnam war you know seeing like ken burns documentary and and just different you know just just picking up things along the way um it's really hard for me to process the fact that there's still people that think that that was like a just, it was a winnable cause and it was a just cause to be in. Um, but I know that that, like, you know, I said, as in many ways, I feel like we're still fighting a lot of political battles. A lot of the, the stuff that we fought in, in Vietnam. Um, should I it's kind, kind of give a synopsis of this film? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Tom Cruise plays Ron Kovic, who is an all-American small-town boy growing up in, I guess, a, a small suburb or, or town out uh, on Long Island. Um, he is extremely patriotic. He's extremely driven to be the best and to succeed. And at the end of his high school career, the Marine recruiters show up and say, if you want to be the best son, you want to put on this uniform. And he volunteers, volunteers for combat, serves two de- tours of duty in Vietnam um, in a confusing mess of a village raid he gets wounded to the point where he is paralyzed from the chest down um he has a harrowing experience in a va hospital he has a harrowing experience returning to civilian life and slowly but surely he turns from the man who thinks that the united states government can do no wrong and and no amount of sacrifice is too much for his country to ask to a man who questions why we are there why we are abandoning uh, and turning their, our backs on his brothers in arms um, and becomes an important figure in the anti-war movement in the 70s. There you go. That's the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so the other thing that I, you know, I, I watched this and I had like a personal relationship with the film. The fact that like, you know, gee whiz, when you look at this protest stuff, uh, when you look at people, what people are saying about the Vietnam War in the middle of the Vietnam War versus like the last war I can remember, the you know the second desert desert storm, uh, the second Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, it's so fucking the same. Um, like the 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 chants, the slogans, uh, the things used on both sides of the argument, 
but reading Ebert's review, like I, I think you said you did too, reminded me the historical context of this film is this was released as communism was essentially taking a nosedive around the world. The Soviet Union was collapsing and fragmenting. The Berlin Wall had fallen. Uh, many, many Eastern Bloc governments issuing official apologies for like, you know, behaviors both home and abroad. And Ebert made a point that like America will never do that. America will never apologize for our foreign blunders. Um, but what we will do is we'll have our artists kind of like make these films. I thought that was, you know, like again, set in the time of like the fact that the Soviet Union was collapsing under its own, uh, under its own weight, um, and its own like imperial, um, dreams and desires. It makes a it, it makes you really wonder, especially after seeing the Ken Burns documentary. What if we had just not done that? What if we had not, you know, imposed our will in some of these uh, Asian countries and our uh, South American countries? What if communism just collapsed without us firing a shot? You know, what if we were there with food and medical ships when they had famines and, you, you know, had theirs like just like, hey, self-evidently, our way of doing things is better, mm-hmm. you know? What what would the world be a better place, or would we all be living in like Eastern Bloc Soviet style concrete condominiums and shit? I, I and speaking Cyrillic, I I don't know. Yeah, but that's yeah. the thing I was thinking uh, when I was watching this. If we if we do one more of these Vietnam era movies, I'm gonna have to go watch that Ken Burns documentary because. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't have the context for it. I was yeah. I was very young at the time. I was about seven years old when this movie came out. I thought you said during the Vietnam War. I'm like, what? No. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I thought about that. And the fact that like America was riding high on the world stage. Like, you know, we had whipped the the fascist in World War One. We'd done it again in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Korean War eh, maybe fought to a tie, but we saved half the peninsula from the communists. And look at North Korea today. That's a, a shitty situation. Um, I felt I feel like that the national sentiment was that we were the good guys. We could do no wrong. Um, there's no, you know, like like Kennedy. Democratic superstar with his, you know, we are going to oppose communism everywhere. There's no sacrifice too much. There's no price we will not pay. Uh, it it. And then you see the kids, like the way they played war and the way that like when they're talking about each other in the diners, like, man, the way these Marines are talking, the Vietnam War might be over in a year. We can't wait. We got to enlist now. Um, There is this kind of cycle of kind of in, uh, I guess, war hysteria where it's like war, you know, the sacrifices were noble and the heroics are real. And that really appeals to young, young men when you're 18 to 26. Yeah, yeah, especially in in that era in the late late fifties, uh, mid sixties, that kind of thing. Like, you can, I think, be forgiven for thinking that the Americans won't get into a war that's unjust, um, mm-hmm. because they have, you know, come. You know, I I don't want to inflate the ego of America too much. We we don't deserve it at this point. But like, there was a sense back then that America was sort of the hero of the world, and they would come to save you if if you needed that right like europe needed yeah. us in world war ii and we were there for him right um so the idea that like vietnam might turn into something that would be despised both locally in america and also on the world stage is sort of anathema you know to the people of that era they, they just yeah, can't conceive I, of it and i think that like then you have the first desert storm and i remember a lot of skepticism about like oh man what if this is another you know vietnam what is this for and it it went so shockingly well mm-hmm. like it was just this one-sided uh, minimal bloodshed at least from the allies standpoint um that i wonder if it gave us some kind of false bravado going into the second iraq adventure that we're still embroiled in between that and, and afghanistan um and the thing i found shocking is you know, like two years ago, was it two years ago? It's just these last couple of years have been a blur. But when, you know, the United States assassinated the Iranian general, the Soleimani, and mm-hmm. there was kind of felt like, you know, there was the world was on a brink of like, oh, shit. Or, you know, is is this going to get involved, us, get us involved more in Syria? Is the Russians going to get in? Oh, my God, what are we doing? Um I didn't find I felt like the, the old debate started started right back up. You know, it was like the Toby Keith put a boot in your ass. 
versus, hey, wait a minute, what the fuck are we doing? And the people saying, hey, wait a minute, what the fuck are we doing? Well, you're not fucking America and love it or leave. It. All that shit just started up and it, it also spun down just as quickly because nothing ever came of it. Yeah. But like, that's the thing where I'm talking like, it's like no one learns anything. Um, and, and, I, and I hate the phrase both sides, but like uh, I thought one thing that like let the left or the progressive left or whatever liberals would learn from the Vietnam War is it's not a great strategy when soldiers come home to like spit on them yeah. and call them baby killers, et cetera, et cetera. Except for like last week, there was this 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 lady who works. I mean, admittedly, it's she's working for the Army's esports, you know, outreach program, which is essentially. Uh, have you seen this? I know. Because, you know, I used to go. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I know they have a video game designed explicitly for recruiting, yes. Um, Which is weird, and I remember, because like, I used to go to a bunch of air shows, and they'd always pull this trailer, America's Army, and it I would have this VR. It's not, it's yeah. not amazing. <laughs> no, but it's like the VR experience is kind of cool, but yeah. it's essentially like, you know, wars of kind of a video game and cool, and look what you can do, and you've played Call of Duty, do it for real, son. Yeah. Um. So, like... Yet this this lady, she takes over the the PR thing for this um, army's esports thing, a recruiting thing, and people immediately start calling her baby killer and a war criminal and kind of hound her off the internet. <sighs> I don't know. I, I feel like you know there is a there is a, like a construct like the like the Matrix where you can emotionally bootstrap your self and and make those arguments like well okay if you're going to carry the army's water and you're going to help them recruit and you see our mission around the world you know then maybe everyone's in there is complicit but there's also the real world where you know most people get into I think the military in this country because the same reason my dad did my dad volunteered for Vietnam because he was a poor fucking white farmer from Waverly, Indiana, and that's the only way he saw out. That's the only way he ever thought he would get a college education. Um, and he did. And I feel like the vast majority of people sign up because they see it as a way out of their town. Predominantly, everyone that signs up, you know, lots of minorities, lots of poor kids, lots of people from places that are economically uh, ravaged, and the recruiters tell them, that, hey, go here, serve four years for your country, Uncle Sam will take care of you, and they sign up. They're not doing it because they want to go kill and they're uh, sure. and, and they, they they believe in a particular mission or even if they do, like a lot of that stuff is. Yeah, that's the official propaganda. So, like, how do you blame them? Um, and, I, and I don't know, because I, I feel like, um, yeah, I, I feel like that that's the one lesson that maybe my side would have learned from Vietnam. And I don't think I don't think it they we have. I think that in another conflict, we'd be right back to the baby killing and war criminal and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Seems like it. Um, yeah. You know, we're getting a, a small taste of that with our our police system here uh, currently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's tough. It's tough when, you know, you have. Blurry lines, I guess, between um the government and the people who are inside of the organizations and the government. And I think like if you, if you look at it from a macro level, you can just sort of blame everyone involved, um, including soldiers uh, who may just be, you know, farm town kids who didn't, didn't have any hopes for the future. And so they joined up and they got stuck in something they don't even agree with, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's tough. And I think this movie does a pretty good job of, of pointing out those distinctions that should be made, but also how they're not often made. Um, mm-hmm. Like when COVID comes back, you know, he, he, we, we saw in that moment, he tried to do everything right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he, the confusion, it was crazy. Um, the thing that he did wrong, uh, the mistake he made is he shot his buddy. Uh, but he wasn't the one who opened fire on those, those kids with the people without the rifles. Like, you know, he, he, I don't know, a, a, but he comes back and suddenly he's treated like this monster. Um, right. When that was never his intention. And I, I, I don't know. I'm, it's tough because what? like I said, this, this movie does a subtle job of developing this character of Kovic and explaining right. the reasons for his, his change of heart. And I think, yeah. um, I don't know. I, I like the way that they manifest in the movie because, there are some scenes where it's heartbreaking. Um, some scenes where it's hilarious. Like I, the, that that scene with his mom, where it's both heartbreaking and hilarious. Like he's he's in his house, he's drunk. Um, you know, he's regretting the decisions he's made. He's angry about how he's being treated. 
uh, and he comes home and he just starts shouting penis at his mother, you know, yeah. just trying. Well, she doesn't allow that language in her house. So. Intentionally trying to offend her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was cracking up that whole scene because it's funny, but like also it's tragic. And I think th- there's there's just so much of that mix in there. Right. This movie is is one of subtlety, not black and white lines. Yeah. I think that's another uh, a point that I've tried to take in because um, even the quote unquote good wars, there was a lot of atrocities committed by the quote unquote good guys. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that we have to realize about war is like you have to decide whether the war needs to be fought and because and, and you have to think about that really carefully, because once you make that decision, bad you know bad shit's going to happen mm-hmm. uh you know you try to hold your response your your soldiers responsible and whatnot but there is going to be friendly fire there is going to be fog of war there is going to be guys that have seen their buddies brains get blown out in their laps and want to go out and get revenge um that all comes as part of it and it always has like it's not a bloodless business it's it's a really grim fucking awful dehumanizing business and then we want to be shocked when un- inhuman things happen so like it's not necessarily like, you know, like the fact that uh, the allies firebomb Dresden is problematic, but like you also still had to fight World War Two. The fact that these GIs shot up a village and killed kids is problematic, but it's extra problematic because, you know, when you go back and step back and say, should they even have been there? The answer is pretty much a resounding no. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's uh, it's kind of like chemotherapy, right? Like, if you're going through chemotherapy because you actually have cancer, then that's a bad situation, but you're making the best of it. If you're a healthy person, the doctor says, you know what? I think I need to to put you on chemo. And they put you on chemo, and you lose your hair, and you die after six months, and you didn't even have cancer. Well, that's that's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. So... And I feel like that's the the uh, what I, I I feel is the kind of like actual deal about Vietnam is it was chemotherapy for cancer that didn't necessarily exist or if it did had no chance of spreading to us or any of our our major allies or if it's time for you know like uh, the time to do chemotherapy I guess is the time is like when the Soviets would roll into West Germany. You know, that's that's when you should start the chemo, not when, you know, a paramilitary organization takes over a South American country or an actual, you know, revolutionary freedom fight, uh, f- uh, fighting force tries to take over Vietnam. Like, I, I if we don't agree with communism, but we do agree with the country's ability to self-determine, don't you have to let those countries have their own social experiments, right? You know? America overthrowing a fucking king was very controversial. That's a for, new form of government that was completely untested, and a lot of Europe didn't like it. I'm super glad we got to try it, though. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely not a historian. I'm definitely not an expert on, uh, you know, reasons that we go to war. But, yeah, it does It does seem like the consensus now is that Vietnam was a mistake. Um. I thought it was interesting how they also showed like the expectations and how much that like his mom and dad had expectations for him. Like when his mom tells him when he's like eight years old, I had a dream that you were in front of a bunch of people and addressing them and saying important things like, holy shit. Uh, and and then I knew also just from the things that she was saying, uh, like, oh, man, this mom's going to be trouble later in the movie. Mm, yeah. um, and she was like the idea that your son's come home with you know nothing below the waist working and you're going to obsess about how much he's drinking and him saying the word penis mm-hmm. and and kick him out uh as a rough scene to watch as a guy who's a difficult relationship with his mother sure <laughs> and hasn't exactly had the emotional support from from her that he's needed over the the years um i thought the movie kicked up another notch when they went down to mexico and willem dafoe you know co-star of, of platoon shows up Fucking Willem Dafoe. I've got Willem Dafoe sucking the worm out of a bottle of mezcal and and wriggling his tongue at me is now in my nightmares. I, I yeah. don't like it. I don't like it. If you can't, what is it? You can't. You can't. You can't move your hips. You better be able to move your move lips. your lips or something. Yeah. Uh huh. Oof. And yeah. how that's so. I, I. I. That's the other thing is like they don't fully explain everything that's happening in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
like the reasons he moves down to Mexico, I'm guessing, is because he was getting this disability check from the government. Um, probably wasn't enough to just live by himself. Uh, and he's getting kicked out of his home because he's being a drunken asshole. So I guess a lot of these disabled GIs are moving down to Mexico because their money probably went 10 to 20 times faster or further. Yeah, yeah. And there is this community and you first you get down there, it's like, oh, my God, this is like they literally say it's paradise. Um, but eventually it kind of collapses onto itself because, you know, these men uh, have been rejected by their society and they've been crippled by this war. And there's not enough drugs, alcohol and, and prostitutes to, to drown all those feelings. But I thought the scene of when they get thrown out of the taxi and they're like angrily circling each other in their wheelchairs on the side of that Mexican road mm-hmm. was just amazing in its ferocity. Uh, and and William Defoe just like swinging for the fences and all every one of those scenes. This is just just a, a, a amazing performance. Yeah. And, and you said something about it. Um because I was trying to, like I said earlier, pinpoint sort of things that changed his mind. Um, and you brought up that that scene is one of those things. Um, and of course, it's the scene that leads to him heading back to the US. And I, I think like what you said about it, where he looked at Willem Dafoe and they had this confrontation and he realized that's what he was spiraling toward. Right. Um, if he didn't sort of reclaim his life um, mm-hmm. and not let this define him for the rest of it. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, he, he comes back and now he sort of has a new lease on life, uh, because he doesn't want to be that guy. Yeah. And there's also so many things again, they don't ever say explicitly point this, but like you can see his, his it's because it, all you have is his POV and there's like three, uh, I, yeah, there's, there's three main clashes he has with protests in america the first fourth of july parade when he comes home and he's in his you know uniform and he's speaking and he sees people like flipping him off and they're angrily you know like these hippies kind of like in the corner you know it's just a very small pocket right of these angry people and he's like jeez what the fuck is going on with this this is not mm-hmm. i don't i don't like this this is un-american etc the second is when he you know follows uh, donna uh played by kira Sed- sedgwick uh to a protest and he sees like, okay, this is some kind of wild stuff, but I've, I'm seeing people that like, like me, look at this guy. He's this, this black guy's up there. He's got purple hearts. He's got uh combat valor medals. He's ripping them off and saying, what are these even worth? And that is starting to like, he's like starting to jive with that. Like, okay, this, this, this guy is making a lot of sense what he's saying. And then the police form up and you know, run them off with gas and, and, and I think that you're supposed to draw the, because the, the police form a line, right? Just like him and his platoon did going into that village mm-hmm. and they advance and they're hurting all these people. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's still kind of on their side and he gets thrown to the ground and out of his wheelchair. And then late in the movie, uh, he goes through that again at the Republican National Convention in 1974 or is it 72? Two, I think, yeah. And I thought it was so interesting that like they he gets uh, he gets beat up and then he gets medically evacuated and saved from arrest by, you know, one of his fellow Vietnam veterans exactly the same way that he was saved um, in 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 the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, guy combat carrying him out of this hot zone and then him rallying the troops and like charging at date gates again. There's no like dialogue to tell you about that. It's just his POV, POV and seeing how he sli- starts, you know, how, first of all, the protests get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more organized. Um, and it mirrors exactly kind of like the Vietnam resistance to the, the, the American part of the Vietnam War. I thought that was just really incredibly effective. And again, it's nothing but Tom Cruise's face and Johnny Williams music. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, fucking... Uh, um, Oliver Stone's "You Are There" approach to directing that 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 tells that story. Yeah, they, they don't have the big acting moments that you're used to in movies like this. Sure, yeah, the, the big monologues and you know uh, all the dialogue that would tell you what that character's thinking. Um, yeah. but they they use the the callbacks frequently um, at, nearing the end of this movie, or I guess in the second half of this movie, they're constantly calling back. Right, like the I, I found it interesting that I, I learned after watching this movie that Ron Kovic was one of the 
veterans in that original Fourth of July parade that it opens up with. Um, he played the oh. one who's flinching when the firecrackers go off. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, and then you see that exact same thing mirrored when Kovic comes back, um, and he's now the veteran in the car, you know, no longer uh-huh. the kid on the sidelines cheering on the veterans. Flinching at Flinching fireworks. at, you know, uh, the, the firecrackers, but also getting the finger put in his face. Um, you know, uh, if not literally and figuratively being spit on, I, it's it's a a stark contrast um, to the 4th of July parades he's familiar with and also uh, a, an informative callback about how, how things have changed since, you know, he was a kid and now. But even then, I thought that was some really subtle performances going on with the, the, the veterans marching in the parade that like, you know, you didn't have the protest. Everybody was cheering these people on as heroes. You know, mm-hmm. this was, these were, you know, middle-aged men from, from Korea and World War II yeah. Um, but you still saw in a lot of these guys a haunted quality mm-hmm. um, that didn't quite match the the cheering and adulation they were getting. And I guess that's the thing. Other thing I thought um, it is it is nice to be together as a society, um, and it sucks when we're divided as a society. But like we're divided because this is important. You know these these are these are important things. Um, it's not because a segment of the society ever just decides to start hating their country, right? It's because their country starts telling lies and starts spending lives unwisely, and you know um, exposing hypocrisy. You know, like this this I'm sure this was like an amazing fresh thought in in 1989. But like you know the the various black men in both the army and the v- veterans hospital, they're like you know fuck Vietnam. Uh, yeah. Essentially talking, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali, like what? I don't have any problem with the Vietnamese. I got a problem with the people that are keeping me down here in this country. And I identify with their struggle against oppression more than I identify with what my fe- my, my own government's trying to do. Um, I, that's the thing that really, really upsets me. The, the facile way that we still engage with these debates that like, oh, you must hate if you don't, you know, America love it or leave it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and they, man, they hammer that phrase into the ground uh, in yeah. this movie. Like it's all... It's all the Tom Cruise. It's all that Ron Kovic can say coming back from the war. You know, that's that's his entire viewpoint is yeah. America 100 percent love it or 100 percent get the fuck out. Like, right. And and that's not real life. That is that is patriotism at its worst. Um, that, that blind patriotism is is, in my opinion, not patriotism at all. Uh, mm-hmm. If you are unquestioning, if you're unthinking um, and you simply have a viewpoint that you stick to it no matter what evidence you're presented with, no matter uh, how incongruous it is with reality. That's not an ideology you should be living by. Yeah. But I mean, it's 100% right in super. It it is brought to a head. I think in the, uh, at the RNC scene, when Ron Kovic having, having taken his entire adult life to change his mind on this subject has finally, come around to to a reasoned to an understanding of the situation and an understanding of his ideology and then goes into this rnc where all he's confronted with is shouts of communist shout like mm-hmm. shouts of baby Be- killer like shooting being spit on him you know like yeah, being the- spit on like it's yeah it, he he's come to some sort of understanding about the world these people mm-hmm. have not had the experience have not had the opportunity to even approach right because their ideology keeps them from even thinking about it and it's there's also another tough scene i thought in the bar where you know he is essentially bitching about the vietnam war and uh he offends his world war ii vet it's like look buddy i fought in iwo jima and five thousand of my brothers died on day one of the landing and i'm so fucking sick and tired of hearing you guys bitch about and crying to your beer like that's not an invalid point of view, right? And like Ron Kovic, who goes through the experiences he goes through, takes years yeah. to turn his mind around. And it's one of those things where it's like, as much as I bemoan what's happening and the way it's talked about, like I can't get too upset about it because I know it's taken my mind a lot of years to change on some very important kind of like obvious and retrospect issues. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me uh, and and... and 
you know, when you get presented with accurate information, it takes years to change your mind. And if it took Ron that long to f- turn around on the Vietnam War, well, how long would you expect a, a, a World War II vet or a, a, a Korean vet or someone that lost their parents in that war or lost a brother in that war um, or who just has the default kind of public understanding of this stuff? Like, you know, like believes that the government's not going to tell you a bunch of fucking obvious lies and is not going to lie about how winnable a war is and how much support you have. It's like I it's one of those things where it's like, God damn, none of these people are enemies. They're just. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what's so frustrating about the conversation that's happening now is that it's not yeah. a conversation. It's one side shouting the other down. Yeah. Um, exactly like you see in that scene at the RNC. It's it's people right. shouting communist. It's people shouting fascist. It, and it's not a conversation. It is. It is ideologues trying to drown out the other side with their own ideology. And I, it, it isn't productive. And, and that's it, like social media is maybe the worst place to have this conversation, <laughs> especially Twitter, like which artificially intentionally limits the conversation to as shout it as, as sure. succinctly and loudly as possible and encourage yeah. no conversation. Here's what's new in premium content for our club members. This week, Jim's away, so the producer will play. That's right, it's time for another fabulous lunch with Talitha and Aaron. Not only do we have an alternate host lineup, we also are doing it on an alternate day. Lunch will be served on Wednesday. All that, plus the usual bullshit for me, served live, or catch the podcast version out later that day. We're about a month out from the kickoff of Badass Fest 6, so get your tickets now while available at baldmove.com slash live. Come watch an outrageously badass mystery film with us. Grab another snack and beverage from the theater's fully stocked bar, then get back in your seat for a live recording of the accompanying podcast. Get more info and tickets at baldmove.com slash live. If you want more Bald Move in your life, head over to support.baldmove.com to find out how you can get tons of bonus audio and video content, plus ad-free feeds. Here's what I so it seems like the best way, like you say, you have need to have a conversation. Um, how does Ron Kovacs have a productive conversation with a person who's super pro Nixon that thinks in 1972 that the Vietnam War is just about to be won? Um, how does he have a productive conversation? It's like it's like what you need to do is line up everyone in America by ideology and have like everyone slightly to the right of you on your right hand side and one to the, slightly to the left of you on your left hand side and you turn left and right and you have those conversations you can have. Uh-huh. But but in real life, what happens is a guy a thousand miles from you, you know, you're trying to convince someone on their side. They come flying in with the fucking napalm and the nuclear uh, and and the the fascist and the the communist, and they because there is there are parts of this conversation that are completely invalid, and there are people that are wrong, and those people that are wrong are causing a, mu- a bunch of harm, and that's the thing. It's like it's 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 this fucking Greek tragedy that like what you say is true, but also that the the act the act like Ron Kovic can have a reasoned discussion with a person who's gung ho in war. Oh yeah, he um, can't. No, no, no that, that's, he can't. that's the thing. Like in a, in an ideal world, you would have yeah. you know discussions. You would have forums where you could come together and speak, you know, rationally, um, right, and, and try to actually convince convince people uh, of why you believe the things you believe, but in the real world that's just not how we operate it's and it's almost like it's it's like a corollary to the talk we had about war it's like war's hell so don't do it unless it's like an existential threat right i feel like the yeah. same thing about this kind of thing is like this is the value of good leadership mm-hmm. um you need to have a person you need to have people that are thoughtfully engaging things you know spending money correctly spending lives correctly and then you have to have them taking the lead of like listening and 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 keeping the discourse at a certain level because once you get take to the streets then you're you lose the ability to have that reasoned you know uh, well let me listen to you and all that stuff and because I yeah I, I at some point like you do have to start screaming and shouting if the side that is wrong sure. and the side is leading to people that's that's dying and stuff um, but yeah like. And, and and how do you come back from that? Because like, that's the other thing is like, I definitely remember times in my life where we have been more united as a people, mm-hmm. but like, it does seem like something really important fractured somewhere around 
the the 60s and 70s and we haven't quite put it back together yeah uh and, and in fact those those div- divisions you know we keep on papering over them with stuff um and yeah like again the the fact that like even you know what what are we 40 years later off after the born on the 4th of July the fact that this is still probably you know i, I hear i i i remember um people shitting on ron kovacs uh when he'd open his mouth about the 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 second the uh, iraq war you know like mm-hmm. people on fox news and conservative commentators like you know i see people still shit on noam chomsky like he was wrong about the vietnam war like he's this crazy guy who's just been talking this radical liberal shit all of his life no some of these people were right and some of those people were wrong and 40 50 years later we still can't call a spade a spade and I think that is one of the big reasons why it does feel like we're in Groundhog's Day, because as a society, we've never actually taken stock. And there's a new generation of people born with no understanding of their past, haven't done a great job teaching that stuff in schools. So we still are stuck in this like, you know, fucking it's cold out there. Uh, campers put on your booties every every 10 years or so. We have to have these same conversations um, because mm-hmm. we never definitively get to a winner and loser situation. Uh, Which is really mind blowing since we're still like it'd be like fighting about whether the Vietnam War is right in 1990 if we were still fighting the Vietnam War. <laughs> sure, you know, like yeah, this is the kind of the, the life, yeah, the kind of life we're living in now. Uh, I, I want to talk about some of the production of this film. So it was a yeah. critical success. Um, it mm-hmm. it cost, I think, after reshoots and stuff, which is is kind of interesting. Um, so it was budgeted for 14 million. They turned in the the final cut of this thing, and Universal said, ah, "I don't really like that RNC scene. Go back and shoot hmm. that again and make it bigger and better." Um, oh wow! And so instead of the six hundred extras that they had in, when they initially shot that scene, they reshot it with about six thousand. Wow! Uh, making it you know bigger and better, literally. Uh, wow, and yeah. it ended up costing like seventeen point eight million worldwide. It made one hundred sixty one million. So pretty successful for oliver stone and universal everybody involved uh and re- re- raking into oscar gold too uh yeah a couple of them mm-hmm. now there were some interesting choices uh i guess first choices for the role of ron kovic that we yes, have to talk is, about i so, wanted to get to this yes first of all there there was uh sean penn and charlie sheen which Okay, Sean Penn, I 100% believe could do it. I mean, Charlie mm-hmm. Sheen, what, he was in Platoon, right? So, like, mm-hmm. that was kind of a natural uh, Oliver Stone, Charlie Sheen pairing. But the more interesting decision, in my opinion, would have been to go with their third choice, Nicolas Cage. Can you imagine Nicolas Cage <laughs> in the broken penis scene? Oh, man. I, I would give... Just about anything to see that it would it would be a very different yes. tone, yeah. Uh, but the performance would just be outstanding. I would love to see Willem Dafoe and Nick Cage in a scenery <laughs> chewing contest on the side of a Mexican highway. Uh huh. I would like to see Nicolas Cage in that bar scene where he's challenging a World War II vet that lost five thousand of his brothers in Iwo Jima. Like yep. they're. I mean, you can see it, right? You can see how volcanic it would be. Absolutely. Um, I guess my my question is, what would Nick Cage look like in the high school scenes? Um, because in Tom 89? Cruise, Tom Cruise was twenty seven when he made this film, but he still had this boyish quality where he, I, I thought it was a little creaky in the way that a lot of these Hollywood things are to, to buy that this guy is a, a senior in in high school. But I think he mostly him and, and Kira Sedgwick both uh, mostly pulled that that off. Um, oh yeah, I mean Tom Cruise has always looked younger than he is. Uh, had sure. that boyish look to him. He's seventy five now, and he still looks younger than I am. Uh, no, legitimately, he's fifty eight, and he looks yeah. outstanding. Yeah, yeah, he does. He doesn't. He doesn't look forty. No, I don't think. No, he looks better than I do. Uh, yeah. So, so here's for context. Here's what Nicolas Cage was in at the time around nineteen eighty nine. Uh, so so 87 to 89, it was like Raising Arizona, Moonstruck, Vampire's Kiss, like that era. Mm-hmm. He's looking pretty young in those things, but I, I, he's, he's, like never, Vincent... he's never looked as young as Tom Cruise looks now, <laughs> let yeah, alone yeah, in 1989. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's like kind of like the Vincent Carthizer type where, yeah. you know, even without 
he just looks like he was born as a, in his mid thirties, you know? Yep. Um, yep. But uh, I don't know. Cause like also Ron Kovic, he, you know, seemed like he was balding at an early age. So maybe that they, they would have paid that, that would have all played off and they put a nice hair piece on him. I don't know, but I, I do wonder how he would have um, played in those early scenes. But speaking of those early scenes, um, I was actually surprised that Kira Sedgwick played such an important part in the first half of this movie and then completely disappeared after that one protest scene. I forget at what university it was. Yeah. Um, uh, she, I think, was the reason he showed up to the anti-war protest in the first place. I think so. But yeah. then they get separated in that and like they you never see her again. She's in a brief flashback as he's like thinking about his, his life at some point. I think this is when he's getting beat down at the, the RNC convention. Um, I was a little surprised. I guess that's maybe how it went in real life. But usually I'm used to Hollywood like punching that up mm-hmm. and like, you know, giving her like either writing her out of the movie and doing something else like building an emotional core around because it's weird. They didn't have a relationship. Like, I guess she was sweet on him as a child, but he was shy, never picked up on it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he, he did this uh, very showy display at the prom night. But like, I never really got that. He meant a lot to her and vice versa. Um, it wasn't like I, I expected to be kind of like a Ginny from uh, Pulp Fiction, not Pulp Fiction, from uh, <laughs> Forrest Gump kind of situation. Oh, yeah. But it, it never, never really got there. So no, it uh, seemed like it was not the right time or place for that relationship. Um, you know, he he was still unsure how he felt about this whole thing. She was very much into the protests. I thought they could have connected. But why, though? Like, why have her be this yeah. kind of like semi romantic figure? Like, I thought maybe it would be like, um, you know, he just doesn't think he's worthy of her because his legs don't work and his dick doesn't work. Or there's going to be some kind of thing like that. Um but she just really just evaporates at the halfway point in the movie. And, and um, yeah, I felt again, like she was there to get him to the protest. And, you know, this is weird to say in the context of an autobiographical film, but like, yeah, uh, yeah, I felt like she was there to get him to the protest so he could begin that journey toward changing his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and with with her absence, why would he be at those protests? Right. Well, I was just thinking that, like, they also established his brother as this, like, pretty strong anti-war yeah. thing. So I thought they could have had, like, something like that or old Vietnam vet. Like, you know, I'm sure they took liberties with Ron Kovic's story at some place. Like, just felt like an untidy part. But maybe also that's that's part of the point is that, um, you know, you never know what's going to be the formative experience or what's going to be the thing that leads you down a particular path. But I, I, I don't know. That was like, I thought a little bit of a flaw in the movie because I kept on expecting her to show up and then the movie was over. And I'm like, Oh fuck, what happened to her? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's pretty, pretty minor uh, criticism of the fil- film. What did you think of the film where he finally gets the courage to meet uh, the man he kills, the Wilsons, mm. uh, their family? I thought that was really interesting. Um, Was that his last stop before fully plunging himself in the anti-war movement? Like he's trying to find, he's trying to find some kind of absolution. Yeah. um, Something that like puts that hole in his heart that, that got blown out by that bullet in Vietnam. Yeah. If he he can't resolve like the, the global scale uh, tragedy here, he's at least going to deal with his own personal, uh, responsibility that he feels the own the, the personal guilt he feels over it. But I don't think it worked. I, I that's the that's the that's the thing that I came away from that scene is that this was him trying to get right with his humanity mm-hmm. and like you know the mom said oh we understand the dad I don't think was pretty angry and you know the guy's fiance that and and mother of his child is you know. <laughs> not offering him forgiveness and then you're right like if you can't if you can't solve the world's problems on a globe global stage and he he, he gets uh beaten vietnam uh then he tries to solve like okay well maybe i can uh, and solve my personal struggles and that doesn't work and that's when he throws himself into well maybe i can i can keep other boys from going through the same fate as as, as i did yeah um and that's when he throws himself into to the war movement um it's a it's but- a Great scene, I thought, um, and a great performance from Tom Cruise. It also uh, mirrored him trying to confess to his commanding officer. Yeah, yeah. Like the whole kind of him like trying to find the words and like starting off like 
like I felt like through both of those scenes, he kept on crossing the line of like, am I actually going to do this? And no, I'm not going to do that. Well, let me talk about this first. And I talk, um, it, it's, it's so, man, I, I, I want to watch this movie again because I felt like there's so many things that mirror each other. Yeah. Um, things in the first act that pay off in the third act. And this was definitely one of them. Like, um, and in neither one of those, I think he walked away with absolution. Mm-hmm. Um, like his commanding officer could have, I don't know if you had a court martial the guy because war is hell and it's just an honest mistake. And, you know, you're his commanding officer. You put him in this situation um, with these troops that were trained with this equipment, with this intelligence, with this mission. Um, but like the whole idea of like, why are you wasting my time with this shit? Get out there and get back to fighting devil dog like that, you know, was not what Tom Cruise needed to hear in, in that moment. No. And it's it's interesting because, you know, like they do make a point about the the lack of support for the veterans as they come back to society oh um, man but but it's you know it's it's largely focused on the physical support that they need um they need mm-hmm. treatment for their wounds they need you know ha- safe housing things like that um but there's one point in the movie where i couldn't help but notice it, it's that penis scene where his mom's just like you need help you need help you're sick you need help she she never and I don't think at the time she would have really said like, you need some therapy. You need to talk to someone. You right. need some mental uh, help here because she's thinking you need Jesus, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's their solution for everything is just, Oh, we'll get close to God. Um, uh-huh. But it's, it's, so it's not really like pointed out in like stark uh, detail there, but it's also very much alluded to, I think, uh, especially now in the modern context, I don't know about 1989, People right. were like, oh, yeah, therapy is the way to go for, uh, you know, a lot of people coming back from these traumatic experiences. Yeah, yeah. So the, the movie, like, I, I'm not sure the movie's trying to say that, but I couldn't help but think it while I was watching it. Mm. That The help, like, she's saying, yes, that the thing that he needs, but. Yeah. And that's the other, th- speaking of cyclical, cyclical cycles that we get stuck in, um, the VA administration and hospitals, um it's insane to me that you are off asking these sacrifices from these men and then they come home. This is the shit that they have to, to deal with yeah. for their health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is a, something that's a perennial issue. Like uh, we're fighting this war in the Middle East and it has, you know, maimed. It's killed a lot of people. It's maimed a lot of people. VA is still underfunded. Um, and, and, and you want to and, and the, your point uh, one of the crucially and critically underfunded things is the emotional side of support for our soldiers, like helping them yeah. return to home, helping them get over their post-traumatic stress. Um, you know, there's a lot of like issues that our, our veterans are facing that we, you know, it's like, I wonder like what, um, you know, th- there is some kind of like Gulf War syndrome that's somewhat analogous to like the Agent Orange stuff that the the men experienced in the jungles of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, like it does seem like that we are very good at planning for the ass kicking, but we have really no plan like in the uptick of uh, uh, soldiers needing medical support and psychological support afterwards. And that's yet another thing that I don't think our nation has, has learned is like, we love to say how much we love our troops. You know, we live in a section of, uh, of this country where we have still to this day, giant, we support our troop banners over all of our inter- uh, uh, exchanges and overpasses and stuff. But shit, if we really love our troops, then first of all, we would only put them in harm's way when we have an existential threat. And two, when we do that, we would fucking take care of them. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't have, uh, uh, I, I don't know that they're still, um, but I know that at one point, like 10 years ago, veterans were one of the highest percentage of people that made up the homeless population in this country. Um, and when you look at stuff like that, when you look at what their job prospects are, like, you know, someone that comes home and is blinded or have their legs blown off. Um, I, it's just really sad. Again, the fact that, like, it, can we not all agree, at least in 2020, that we should at least adequately fund the, the veterans hospitals, yeah. the veterans administration? Like, is that not something we can do to, to support the troops? Um, it seems to. crazy. that, Yeah. Or, you know, the other thing is, like, if... Um, you would expect that one side would be all gung ho about supporting it. And the other side would be starving it. And you know what? The sides that you might think are completely opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So I I don't know. Uh, as I said, this movie is a very frustrating movie because it's amazing. It's good. It's soul searing. Um, but it's also frustrating because I just feel like we and on so many different axes in society, we could be right back into this situation um, again. And we already are in like when it comes down to like the, the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality. Um, we, we, we kind of already are in that point. So glad we didn't get in a war with Iraq or Iran. Yeah. Uh, there, there's some weird cameos in this. Uh, that I wanted to bring up real quickly. Uh, one of those cameos is a guy named Wayne Knight that you might remember from uh, a little show called Seinfeld that, you know, I think was already premiered at this point. It had to have been. Um, I don't know who you're talking about, but I do know him as Dennis Nedry from uh, Jurassic Park. There's that as well, which had yet to come out. But uh-huh. uh, yeah, so, so Newman uh, from Seinfeld is in this for like, 30 seconds. I, he's like one of the guys at the RNC who's just sort of in the background, right? Or, or the DNC. I don't even know. It's yeah, it's a DNC in, in the 76. 70, yeah, I, I, you're right. And I don't think he has a speaking line. No, he's just there and he push. I think he pushes the wheelchair or opens a door for him and then he's he's yeah. done. I guess that would have been pretty, pretty early in his career, but it's not well, like he was a nobody then. Yeah, I'm I'm um the because he's also has a much bigger speaking part. I mean, not a huge part, but a much bigger speaking part in JFK the movie. And I'm right, I'm right. starting to see that like uh Oliver Stone seems like he's one of those guys who's very loyal. Yeah, you know, like Willem Dafoe was one of the co-stars of Platoon and also I don't know this guy's name, but one of the other co-stars was the the lead um the 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 gunnery sergeant um recruiter that marches into the high school. Yeah, Tom Barry. Like yeah, there you go. Uh, he does seem like he keeps these people around even for like bit parts and stuff. Uh-huh. And like, you know, Wayne Knight, I don't know. He must have impressed him because he got he, he got called back for JFK for a much larger part later. I think JFK, the movie, um, yeah, is in 91, two years after this. Yeah. So you got cut. I wonder if that DNC scene was like he had some lines and stuff because also um, who's the prick from Scrubs? Oh, John C. McGinley. Yeah, he's the, the asshole doctor. He He's right there. Like, you know, Wayne Knight is on his left and this guy's on his right. And they both have like 30 seconds of screen time with zero dialogue. And uh, I wonder if there was a bigger scene that just got cut later. And Oliver Stone's like, hey, I'll bring you back for such and such a movie at a, a different time. But he is. Yeah, he, yeah. he works with a lot of these people. I, I want to um, say again and again. Is it Billy Baldwin who's also in that scene? There's Billy? definitely a Baldwin behind him at one point. Yep, there I, definitely is. I can't remember if it's this or something else I was watching recently, but I think the lawyer from Scrubs is also in this. Really? Yeah. Huh. Maybe it was something else I was watching. But there, there are so many of those just like small. It, they're almost extras. They're they're mm-hmm. They're at that level in this film, and yet they're pretty big names even at the time. Yeah, I was uh, there's man, there's so many. I should have written them all down. But uh, oh, Tom Sizemore. Right. Uh, right. Also in is, right? is in that uh, is, 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 he's also uh, the one that uh, the, the role that I always stands out in my mind is he plays a sergeant in uh, Saving Private Ryan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's like all these people are that they're just, um, you know, hanging around in the fringes that are either about to have a big career or had a big career or continue to have a big career. It's pretty, pretty cool. It's crazy. And then the last production note I wanted to bring up, which is maybe even crazier than the the previous one. Did you know that Oliver Stone wanted to inject Tom Cruise with drugs that would paralyze his legs for two days? And that the insurance company had to shut that shit down? Because I think Tom Cruise would be would do it. He would 100% do it, and it would 100% be a bad idea. Like, yeah. I, I don't get this. Like... You don't have to throw somebody off a building to get the reaction of them falling off a building. You don't have to paralyze someone to get them to act like they're paralyzed. They are actors, right. for God's sake, Oliver Stone. Yeah, <laughs> just let them who, do who, their jobs. Who was it? It was a Lawrence of Olivia, or uh, or was it Peter O'Toole that like some method actor was talking about all these grueling things he did to prepare for the and then this guy like took a sip of his brandy and said, "You know, you should try acting, old boy. It's uh-huh. it's 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 a lot easier than all that shit you're doing." Like, was that Sidney Poitier who said that? It might have been. It was uh, is one of those like actors actors that yeah. was like, "Yeah, why? Well, what is this shit? Going living in a cabin for six months, to prepare for like, nah, fucking, you know." 
just, just, I, I, I that is insane that I, you would willingly, because there's got to right. be, there's not an insignificant risk that you just never start walking again after that. No, like, that let me was, shoot that botulism. That was the worry, yeah, of of the yeah. insurance company. They were like, he might never walk again, and he's a huge movie star. Yeah, you how would you this. even insure for that? Like the Tom Cruise's collective box office from 1989. Right. I mean, we could we could get the real number, the benefit of hindsight, but how do you write that policy? Yeah, <laughs> like some two billion dollar legs or something. Like, yeah, it would probably fuck? bankrupt the production. I don't, I don't, I don't think you could pay the insurance on that. Uh, yeah, the, the the premium. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I don't know. That was insane to me. Yeah, I but. thought it was interesting, like Ron Kovic's like wanting. Oh, God, that's another gruesome scene where he got that compound fracture trying to oh. walk with no legs. He's such such a driven dude, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of guy that like you don't you don't want to have against you if you're fighting for you want on your side when you're fighting for a cause. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah. That's it. That's all I got. All right, born on the Fourth of July. It's a great movie. Uh, I'm glad if I, I I'm, I'm glad I watched it. Um, now I've seen uh, two of the three of the Oliver Stone uh, trilogy of Vietnam. I have not seen. Is it Heaven and Earth? Yeah, that one's interesting. It stars Tommy Lee Jones, and it's more about the v, I guess the Vietnamese experience, like what it's like to be a a, a person kind of caught in that civil war. Because we don't ever really think about it in terms of like. You know, it was a real civil war in Vietnam, brother against brother. Uh, and uh, it really tore that. I mean, however many people we lost, they lost 10, 20, 30 times more. Um, and we're a much smaller, poorer country to begin with. So uh, I think I want to see that next to see because these were all made like two or three years apart from each other. Um, and and uh, it's it's kind of cool that he was able to bring all that perspective to to the roles mm-hmm. um, next week. It's going to be the 10th anniversary of one Christopher Nolan's Inception. Uh, one of our very first movie reviews, what we did in the ball, the, the old blue yonder days uh, was of this movie. Uh, and we were actually just going to re-release it as like, uh, uh, you know, and we listened to it like, holy shit, this sounds like terrible. We recorded this in, in Jim's apartment, uh, I think a couple days before you moved out. So it was all like <laughs> maybe echoey. on one microphone. I- yeah, we passed around a mic and we're like, this is this is terrible. And you know what? I want to see Inception again. It's a 10th year, yeah. 10th, 10th year anniversary. So we're going to watch uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception. Um, it's a real b- uh, brain bender. I love the movie. I got a lot of I got a lot of thoughts about it. I'm really excited to see it again. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing next week. If you guys want to, you know, get a little get a little prep, uh, do your homework and, and, and watch it with us. Uh, but we'll be back next week with that for our bald movie. Until next time. I'm Aaron. I'm Jim. I'll see you.